Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Happy to be joined yet again today by Josh Blank, research director of the Texas Politics Project. Good late morning, Josh. Thank you. Good morning to you. Um, Well, thank you. So I I thought what we do today is circle back to the dominant story that we sort of that we talked about a lot last week, um, but has seen some significant developments in the interim, as as expected. And that that would be, of course, the the political repercussions of the search warrant that was executed last week. Now about ten days ago at Mar-a-Lago and the Trump work areas and and living areas. that resulted in the removal of several boxes of documents. Now, when we recorded last week on Wednesday, it's remarkable how different the story looked. Right. I mean, given that this had a lot to do with what we didn't know at the time and and some of the things that we, I think we almost assumed were the case in terms of what the motivation was here, what the, re, the warrant, what the reason for the search was. Right. That turned out to be very different, right? So- you know, last week we we talked a lot about how reflexively many Republicans, um, including the most prominent Texas Republicans, including Governor Abbott and, and Senator Cruz, you know, really went from zero to 60 in denouncing the search on Monday night as Nixonian, Gestapo-like, you know, a sign that they'll be coming for you next. Right. Um, you know, the implication being, you know, without any evidence, and in fact, lots of evidence to the contrary, you know, that the, the Biden administration had ordered this search in order to undermine uh, their, their possible, you know, undermine Donald Trump as a possible contender in, in 2024. And, and also lots of basic logic to the contrary. But anyway. Yeah, exactly. There were a lot of things that were, you know, not not right about it. We talked a lot about that yeah. last week, even based on what we knew. Um, you know, lots of developments send that since then. Two very important ones, I think, if we're going to talk about the political response, although some of the other stuff that's come out will certainly come up as we talk about this. Mm-hmm. You know, one was the armed attack on an FBI office in Cincinnati last Thursday, mm-hmm. uh, wound up with the attacker killed in a shootout in a rural area not too far from the that office. Uh, the shooter was a regular on Trump's Truth Social Network. Um posted things that made it seem as if he was at least in part motivated or triggered, if you will, by the raid on the compound. Yeah, and I believe I read this morning too. You know, he's still under investigation for activities around January sixth. I mean, right? So, yeah, know. he had, he he was not a stranger to the active FBI. in the space, right? And then the other, you know, which which followed the next day on Friday was the release of the search warrant and the property receipt for items that were removed by the FBI. And while there wasn't a ton of detail, there wasn't enough detail in the characterization of of the boxes and packages of, you know, batches of documents that were re- removed that we know that there were some different levels of top secret and classified documents, but also some that were highly classified, right. you know, that are usually, you know, 
to be viewed only in a very secure facility, et cetera. Right. Um, Which is not the basement of Mar-a-Lago? Right. It's not okay. the basement of Mar-a-Lago. And, and, and the statement of probable cause for the search, which was not really which, what everybody had been speculating right. about. The initial speculation had been that this was about the violation of a law passed in 1978 that requires presidents to turn over all their documents mm-hmm. and affirms the fact that these belong to the country, to the National Archives, not to right. the, the office holder. Um, but it turned out that this was really much more about national security issues, these classified documents, right. and the fact that there had been ongoing negotiations, even previous visits. They knew these documents were there. A Trump lawyer had signed a, an affidavit to the effect that there were no more classified documents there, and the FBI did not believe them. And so now there's an old issue of obstruction. Right, yeah. You I know, mean... a cover-up, et cetera, right? And that they were holding on to, to some of these documents um, that are not supposed to be out in the wild. And, you know, something I hadn't put in the notes, but also I think is worth flagging is that at an earlier meeting, I think in early June, with FBI officials and counterintelligence officials, the FBI had reviewed videotapes of one of the areas where these documents were being stored, mm-hmm. and they saw something that they didn't like. Right. That suggested to them that the area was not secure. You know, they had them put a padlock on it, right. et cetera. So, you know, all of which leads us to how Republicans are now positioning themselves vis a vis these developments, the search itself, the actions of the FBI. You know the the impl- you know the the imputations that this was, as we've said, without any evidence, a politically motivated action aimed at Trump rather than what is actually in the document in the court documents, right. et cetera. And you know we've seen interesting dynamics in the last week where you know we talked a lot last week about how quickly people jumped on this. You know, you were saying even last week, I think, and and people were saying, you know, there had been even some reporting that there were people from inside the Trump camp urging people to maybe cool their jets. Right. That another shoe was going to drop. Shoe definitely, other shoes definitely dropped. And so we've seen some adjustments now, right? Right. And I think, you know, as I said, you know, we, we spent a lot of time because of, you know, our focus is on the politics of this stuff always. And you know, we spent a lot of time last week talking about sort of the, the you know, sort of the presence or, you know, really <laughs> exploring the presence or absence of a political calculus and the immediate response and how sort of uniform it was and how strong it was. Um, you know, with more information coming out, you know, you're kind of seeing, you know, I was thinking there's an evolution to these things. And I mean that, you know, in a classical evolution, you know, some of these arguments remain and they kind of, you know, refine and they work themselves out to kind of where we land. And some of them kind of drop by the wayside a little bit. And I think, you know, what you've seen is, you know, the predominant I think uh, Republicans sort of response to this one, I think really marked by both uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and then our Governor Greg Abbott, is basically, you know, sort of it gives a better read, I think, of the final calculation on this. And I think it tells us something that kind of actually is informative about sort of other things that are going on, right? And what you see about, I think, where DeSantis and Abbott landed was to basically say, look, you know, it's basically to play on the dark demons that already exist, which are, you know, Negative attitudes towards the federal government, which are widespread in the Republican Party. Yeah, we talked about some of the polling on that last right. week. Right. Negative attitudes towards Joe Biden, which are, you know, extremely widespread in the Republican Party. You know, ideas about a deep state and potential, you know, again, this idea that especially Democrats are going to mobilize, you know, basically government in whatever manifestation to basically crack down on, you know, dissidents now, the sort of thing that's sort of floating around out there. 
And so you endorse all these things by saying, you know, the FBI has, you know, gone gone overboard. This is tyranny. This is a banana republic, et cetera, et cetera. But what you're not hearing a lot of is like, and what Donald Trump did was fine. Right. And but the thing is, is you're not hearing any condemnation of that either. And that's exactly and that's really the perfect sweet spot. Right. Because basically you're you're saying the same things in a lot of ways that Donald Trump is saying about the, the sweet administration. spot in political terms. Yeah, in political yes. terms. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in normative terms, it's a horrible spot. We'll get to that. Right. In a if you're a Republican trying to position yourself. Yeah. You get to say, hey, look, you know, you don't have to say I defended what the president did because you, right now you're not really clear exactly where this is going to go. But you can say the same, you know, enemies that he's pointing out. Those are my enemies, too. And therefore, I'm in league but there's plausible deniability. I'm not justifying what the president has done. I'm fighting the good fight, and I'm fighting it for principles and to you know and to protect the republic. And we'll put a pin on that. Yeah, we'll put a pin on that. <laughs> Rather than you know than the former president per se. Right. And so this is you know so on the sun, just from a political standpoint, say this is the sweet spot, right? I mean, you basically get to say, look, you know, I'm I'm playing on themes that are very prominent in, in Republican politics and among Republican voters. I'm echoing the president, which allows me to say that I'm supporting him without necessarily endorsing any actions that you may have to eventually, you know, justify why you would have, you right. know, again, justify the president's actions. But the results obviously can be pretty messy and dangerous here, like when people take guns to FBI field offices. And also, I think, you know, you see a similar parallel here in the other kind of, I would say, maybe one of the big stories in Texas this week about the effect this is having on the administration of elections, where, again, you're seeing something similar, whereby on the one hand, we are talking a lot about uh, primary elections in which candidates either, you know, win, you know, win and a lot of times fueled by, you know, denial of the 2020 election and endorsement of Donald Trump's vision of what happened there. Right. And then obviously, you know, very high profile cases like Representative Liz Cheney losing. Right. You know, because she basically didn't endorse this view of it. Now, there's actually something pretty parallel yeah, here. We'll come back to Cheney because Cheney is actually even a step beyond a lot of that. I mean, right. The, you know, the contrasting Cheney and the people you're talking about is an interesting one, but keep going. Right. But I guess the main point here is, you know, this overall political dynamic, you can kind of see it playing itself out, which is to say, you know, well, we can't, you know, there's not a lot of, there's a little bit more reticence to justify Trump's actions around the election around January 6th, but you can still uh, see a lot of Republicans continuously parroting the claims of fraudulent elections, of fraudulent election administration, of voter fraud. And again, it, it provides the same amount of plausible deniability to say, well, if something comes out that says, well, you know, we have these, you know, email, you know, we have these right. text messages between Trump telling someone, you know, that we'll send the people with the guns or whatever, you know, whatever it is. He said, whoa, I didn't, I didn't say that was okay. But it doesn't mean that the, that the underlying electoral process isn't right. damaged. Now, again, just like in the case of this, you know, where the FBI and Mar-a-Lago search leads a man to basically go and attack an FBI office. The other kind of big story in this week was, you know, these instances of harassment of local election officials here in Texas, right? right. And we should mention that, that, you know, that was an interesting, I mean, I, you know, what really kicked that off this yeah. news cycle, or, right. you know, in the, in the last couple of weeks was um, reporting that actually started in the local Fredericksburg paper, I think, mm-hmm. yeah. um, that the local, you know, county level election officials, you know, like there were three of them, right. had all kind of resigned on Moss because they were being harassed and receiving threatening phone calls and, you know, just kind of didn't want to deal with it anymore, right. ultimately. And I, think, and I think it's important to point out, you know, if you're listening and you're not, you know, familiar with the geography of Texas, you know, Fredericksburg is probably, I would think, you know, about 80 miles west of Austin, give or take. Yeah, something like that. It Maybe looks, not, not even that far, I don't Yeah, think, 60 but, to yeah. 80 miles west of Austin. It's in Gillespie County. This is a, a county 
uh, that in 2020, 79% of the vote went to Donald Trump. This is not a Democratic county. Presumably, if 79% of the you know vote went to Trump, you'd think that good chance that Trump voters are running the election process in Gillespie yeah, County. Those, those, those hill country counties, Gillespie County being one of them, are long time, I mean, long-time Republican bastions. I mean, they were one of the areas where, you know, there were, you know, Republicans sort of sat out the hundred-year storm between, you know, the post, between Reconstruction and the Civil Rights era. Those those are some of the few counties that were, where there were, you know, there was Republican, there were real Republicans for a long time. So right. this is not, this is not like an embattled area. Right. And this is part of, I mean, the thing is, you know, there's a way you can kind of zoom out and you can zoom in and zoom out again on this, right? But I mean, ultimately, you know, this this came up, you know, I was asked uh, to kind of give like a hot take on the K, for the KXAN, you know, right. report on this. And I wasn't still kind of figuring out what to say. But one of the things I said to, to them was like, you know, you should probably like reach out to some of the big counties in Texas, like Bear County, where San Antonio right. is, or, or Harris County, where Houston is, or Dallas County. Because I'm my guess would be those election officials there are receiving a lot of harassment and and as it turned out, there was a story that came out of San Antonio and Bear like the next day. Yeah, basically, at, at basically at a, at a meeting of the you know sort of election you know administrators, basically saying, yeah, you know, this is this is right. what it's been like. And in addition to the fact, you know, Texas has made it kind of harder for us, not because of, I mean, mostly because of the new laws that essentially are adding you know di- increasing reporting requirements, a greater you know scrutiny, more penalties, more power to poll watchers. But on top of that, you've got tons and tons of people filing Freedom of Information Act requests. You know, basically deluging these departments to try right. to find this fraud yeah i think i think in bear I, I could be wrong but i believe it was in bear county where they were you know filing open records requests mm-hmm. for every ballot for every ballot for the source code for the <laughs> they machines had to, they like, had to hire people to process these requests yeah. it's a, look, it's clearly like a, a form of harassment right? yeah well and i would say look i mean on its face i want to say like on its face there's nothing wrong with that those laws exist for a reason i mean i think if anything you know texas actually you know has you know a spotty history with the way that it you know is is transparent with open records requests so i don't think that in and of itself but it does raise this this broader issue, which is, you know, you kind of take a step out, you can keep kind of keep stepping back and you'd say, you know, we're looking at all these elections uh, for, uh, you know, often cases, secretaries of states in places like Georgia, Michigan, Arizona, Arizona, especially uh, where, you know, you have uh, candidates using the small D democratic process and you, you know, fueled by you know, campaigns fueled by, you know, the, sim- the same conspiracy theories that Donald right. Trump is promoting. And really an overt uh, and naked plea to take partisan control of the election process. Right. So you've got that set of attitudes, right? And that sort of thing going on, and we're seeing that all over the place. But then the same set of underlying attitudes that we were talking about here, both, you know, uh, the conspiracy theories, but then also, you know, sort of negative attitudes towards, you know, the election system. And yeah, towards you know, election lack officials. of trust in the, in the validity of the system. Right. That's leading to, you know, again... I would say this happening at more local levels with people trying to take over, you know, county level election positions and things like that. In Michigan, there's a story where the Secretary of State in Michigan is concerned that there are a number of county canvassers, they're called there, who basically have not committed that they will certify the upcoming right. elections, which, you know, I mean, if you just kind of take a step back and say, well, yeah, I mean, why should someone commit to certifying the election? Say, I don't know. I think maybe one, some people might say the person whose job it is to like run the election smoothly right. might be able to say, yeah, we expect to certify the election results. But part of this is that the same set of, you know, attitudes and theories leading people to sort of potentially go into mostly Republican counties and say, yeah, we might just grind this to a halt. Yeah. And then this is the other thing though. And then you've got, this sort of other set of actors, which is much more disparate, right? Who are taking, again, the same set of conspiracy theories, the same set of attitudes, 
and calling election officials and leaving voicemails threatening to end their bloodline. And this comes from, you know, a report that uh, I guess what is this? This is from the yeah the Democratic staff of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform put out a a, a report last week called "Exhausting and Dangerous: The Dire Problem of Election Misinformation and Disinformation." And that's you know got a little you know I mean it, it got some attention because it was written by majority staff. It was seen as a partisan document, right? But it did have a lot of interesting things, and, and in particular, they focused on Arizona, Florida, Ohio, and Texas, where, you know, uh, it was found that this election misinformation appeared to be having significant impact. So, right. you know, and there was evidence of of coordinated campaigns, mm-hmm. you know, right. to, in the directions that you're talking about. And, um, so, and so, I mean, at least, you know, we'll, just to, so this is all the setup, but it kind of gets to the point where, you know, I, I'm it's sort of- a long of, setup. It's a long, well, hey, do we- <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> <You know? laughs> this is a running, running commentary between us. Um, but I mean, it does raise a sort of issue. I mean, I think you know, you kind of go back and say, you know, as someone who watches the process and studies government, I mean, the American system certainly tolerates, and the American public certainly tolerates a fair amount of, uh, you know, I'd say, people in political power having avenues to use the political process to try to maintain their power. We see that in the incumbency advantage. We see that uh, in gerrymandering. You know, we can see that in right. the fact that, you know, basically the majority party can pass any election laws more or less that it wants that don't, you know, violate the law. And so we we allow this, right? I mean, and, and I, I don't, that's not, that's just a, that's an observation, right? That's not a criticism right. or anything. And that's one thing, right? And then you've got this sort of small D democratic effort of people running for office to, you know, sort of, put their finger on the scale of the electoral process. And that's not the same thing, but I'd say it's in yeah. the open, right? Because they're campaigning and they're telling you well, exactly. Well, yeah, what... I mean, there's two different, you know, let me add a couple yeah. of overlay yeah, points please. on that. So, you know, one in terms of, you know, the the tolerance or the expectation of some degree of partisan inflection of, you know, to use a term that used to be fairly neutral, but is now being used by these people right. to be kind of, you know, basically leverage over the the administrative apparatus of the state. There you go. <laughs> right. And, but, you know, as you were talking about that, while we expect a certain degree of that. Yeah. You know, in a way there's, it's been kind of a settled model in the United States that goes back to you know, administrative reform movements Mm -hmm. that limited patronage that began in the late 19th century and really went into effect in the early 20th century, Hatch Act, you know, basically the creation of civil servants, Mm -hmm. right, that are supposed to be insulated, you know, at at the operational level from the kinds of things we're talking about. And so, you know, you have appointees and appointees, impact the direct, particularly at the federal level, impact the direction of the bureaucracy. We see that at the state level. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on top of that, and then parallel to that, you also have the historical development of something that has also settled around that time mm-hmm. that also became, it seemed like at least in the intermediate term, kind of a settled issue, which is that the election administration apparatus should be particularly... Right. insulated from political influence because it is so close. You know, it's the vehicle for political competition and for, yeah, for registering man- popular preferences. And I think that, you know, what we're witnessing now 
in various places is a challenge of both of those you know settled models of how we're going to administer government and administer elections right and and one of the interesting things is you were talking about Gillespie County and San Antonio the democratic report you know if you go back to earlier this year and and into last year um the the person in charge of elections, the county clerk in Travis County, Dana Dubois, recently stepped down after a long and, you know, frankly, pretty illustrious tenure as the, I mean, she was like a national figure involved in elections administration. If you're pro-participation. She was basically, you know, under investigation, not because a bunch of you know, the kind of folks that we're talking about are activists were questioning what she was doing. She was under investigation by the attorney general, the Republican right. attorney general, Ken Paxton, who was, and and we should say, you know, Dana Dubois is partisan. I mean, she's yeah. a Democrat in Travis County. Right. You know, she's won a million elections in Travis County. You don't do that as a Republican. Um, and those charges were ultimately dropped. Well, they couldn't, they couldn't, they I mean, they couldn't get, I don't know if they could get an indictment. Right, they couldn't get the indictment and, you know, cost her some money, you know, she, she wound up getting that well, compensated. Cost- but the point being, I guess the, the other overlay point I want to make here is that there's an interesting elite mass dynamic here mm-hmm. that goes both to the efforts to impact the the machinery of elections that right. predates Trump, as we were yeah. talking. I mean, this is a long term. Yeah, Trump didn't make this up. Right, I mean, there's, you know, there's been a long term, you know, effort in Texas as in other places to raise doubts about the integrity of the electoral process. Right. With you know that goes back, you know, at least a decade, if not decade and a half or so. Right. We could unpack that if we wanted. Um. But there is a you know elite mass dynamic going on here that goes back quite a while that I do think elites have some blame for, but now it's impacted public attitudes, right? And it's it's impacted public attitudes in a partisan template. And we've talked about it on the podcast. It's been a while, but we've asked, you know, pairs of questions about different partisan frames Mm -hmm. about people's doubts about elections, you know, and to oversimplify, Republicans are very likely as a group to think that people are voting that are not eligible to legally to vote legally. Right. You know, that's usually very adjacent to wildly unsubstantiated claims that undocumented non-citizens are voting. Democrats are very likely to think that people um, that are eligible to vote are being prevented from voting. Right. And that's not new. Yeah. And that comes from, to some degree, you know, particularly in the Republican case, and, you know, Republican, if the, somebody was here would say, well, wait just a second, and that'd be fair. But both Democrats and Republicans are modeling this, but the but the Republican kind of position now that, Electoral institutions have so little integrity that what we're seeing is basically the jettisoning, the jettisoning, to my mind, of the principle of an impartial election apparatus, if not the principle of democracy. Right, and 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 well, and that, but I think, and that falls out of that, right? right? Or you know, I mean, I think probably in different cases. I mean, I, you know, we were talking beforehand. For those of you that haven't seen it, um. Robert Draper, who, you know, probably well known to some of you, wrote in Texas for a long time, 
uh, is now doing stuff mainly for the for the New York Times Magazine. Has a very good long piece on the kind of ideological, you know, what you're pointing to, the ideological underpinnings of the movement to take over election apparatus that is that is built on the assumption that the election apparatus is inherently corrupt and it's inherently corrupt in part because it's been subject to too much small d democratic influence to some degree right, right? yeah you know and it sort of enters these long-standing arguments on the right about you know the catchphrases the and, and draper does a good job of re-raising this mm-hmm. going back to barry goldwater and even before that ultimately that you know the united states should not be thought of as a democracy it should be thought of as a republic right and the implications of that are that you know do go back to debates at the time of the founding and and in political philosophy if you want to go that far about you know the, the fact that you need to modulate democracy right um you know in, in in a literal sense that you you know direct democracy is a threat you were sort of implying this for too much participation is there's a, there's such a put it this way there's such a thing as too much participation and too much voting and that is a shift the fact that that argument has become so much more prominent yeah. in these debates is a shift from the era of expand you know where it was seen as an unambiguous normative good yeah, right. by the majority of people to expand participation. Yeah, I think the takeaway line in that Draper article, if you're takeaway one, is this idea, you know, the, you know, some candidate in Arizona basically says, you know, America is not a democracy, it's a republic. And the right. idea that, you know, and it's saying, you know, just take a pause for a second, say the idea that, you know, a candidate for major office in the United States would come out and say, this is not a democracy, as a not in terms of as a criticism, right, but as a statement of fact... Is pretty interesting. The thing to me that I think, you know, again, as someone who kind of likes to think about these things from the strategic perspective of politics yeah. is how out of control this is. I mean, because again, I said the same sets of attitudes are are, are, are resulting in, you know, sort of anti-democratic efforts at multiple different levels. Um, you know, and in the case of, you know, I think the harassment of election ministers, I think, you know, borders, if not walks you know, borders the line of, if not crosses the line of what you'd call terrorism, right? Because ultimately you're trying to influence the actions of basically, you know, civil servants who are trying to like run the process for political ends. That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's terrorism, right? You've raised that a couple of times as we've been talking about this in different contexts when we were working on the poll yesterday. Um, You know, it's funny. I mean, I, I see that and maybe this is just, I don't know, who knows what this is, but the term that that really occurs to me, though, is more like organized crime or racketeering. But see, but, but you know, <laughs> right? but, but, but which, here's, you know, which hinges on intimidation, violence, yeah, but, but here's threat the, of violence. But see, but here's here's the thing, though. I mean, I would I would agree if I again I go back to where we where I was starting that point, which is, but I'm not sure. You know, when we were talking about, you know, what, you know, for example, you know, we I was talking to you uh, in reaction to the Gillespie thing before I was talking to the you know KXAN. We were just talking about, you know, you said something I think was important, which is like, well, what's the goal of these people? Now, when you say these people, part of it is it's already a disparate group of people who are, you know, leaving nasty right. voicemails and threats on phones. So I think automatically, you know, it's easy to kind of say, well, you know, let's let's discount it. But it's an important question. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of it is I go I go back, you know, it's one thing to say I'm running to be, you know, the election, you know, the, the chief election administrator in Georgia. 
right? And here's what I want to do. It's another thing to say, yeah. I'm ready to be the county, you know, commissioner, you know, the county canvasser in this district in Michigan, because even though the, the vote went 80-20 for Trump, the whole process is screwed up. And, you know, I'm going to go in there, I'm going to find it. And if anything, I don't even know if I can trust these votes enough to canvass it. And it's another thing still to say, I'm going to end your bloodline because yeah. you've been involved in like running elections here, wherever here is. And I can't say and this is the thing I think is a little bit scary about this. I think if you went and said to Greg Abbott, Ted Cruz, no, honestly, like, what do you think the end goal is here? Where where do you think we're going to get with this? Even if they can give you a clear answer, I don't think they can give you a clear answer for the people who are calling and making these threats. Yeah. And I don't think that they can necessarily give you an answer for the people kind of who are running for these generally like pretty like low level, you know, really administrative offices that are almost like really, I mean, yeah. they're public service to make sure the election run well. And trying to basically see what you can do at a local level, which, again, in an era in which there's no trust in journalism, uh, very little local journalism, you know, what's going to happen kind of under the radar as you sort of put people in office who who, who are basically already saying, yeah, my number one job isn't to, to run a good election. My number one job is to, you know. Make sure one side wins and if I have, you know, and yeah, prevent I, the other side from winning if I. And I mean, it's a very, and again, just like, again, just like saying, you know the FBI is run by fascists and you need to watch out might lead someone to take a gun to an FBI office. You know, this constant rhetoric about elections, yeah. even in a place like Texas where Republicans have won for 20 plus years and even counties where they've overwhelmingly won, you know, I can't say where that goes, but it doesn't well, look good. You know, look, we, I don't know if you, I mean, I'm sure you remember this. If you remembered it in this context, yeah. I mean, you know, we did an op-ed about a year ago, I think, Oh yeah, saying, <laughs> you know, all this talk, you know, we should uh, urging Texas leaders, yeah, not to ride the train on delegitimize and delegitimizing the election process because it would lead to bad places. We are in a bad place, and that's not. A, I told you so. I mean, all kinds. Of, you know, that was in the air. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about that, but I mean, you know, that's where we are. I mean, a little point on that. You know, I mean, and. You know, your guy, Matty Iglesias, this morning, I don't know if you got to it. I didn't read the whole thing, which I often don't with Matt, but um, he starts with a thing about, you know, how you can get too wound up about language, but but linguistic differences do, you know, I can't remember what he was talking about. But in this case, this is, you know, I'm going to, I want to think more because it just occurred to me in real time, this kind of terrorism, criminality, you know, I mean... uh, it's a fairly recent development that we think about terrorism so much yeah. in the historical sense, you know, where, you know, and I've been watching a bad TV, not a not very good TV show about the making of the Godfather for those mm-hmm. of you that are watching it, the offer, but there's a lot of stuff about, you know, the mob in there. And, you know, there's something about all this that in terms of thinking about the political language of it, you know, I'm intrigued by terrorism, racketeering, criminal, you know, just in terms of how you communicate to people about this. Yeah. Right? I mean, terrorism obviously pushes a big button, but it's also, to me, it's a little it's a little big in a certain way. Now, this is big. But that's the thing, I think, but the, I mean, I would say, you know, do you, you know. No, I get, I get, I mean, I get the yeah. point, but I'm also like, also from a tactical point of view, you know, what's the crime here? 
you know, in terms of where when people are calling well, and threatening people. And, well, that's why from a language. Per- well, I mean, I think that's yeah. why from a language perspective. And again, the terrorism thing. I mean, the crime, the crime piece on this. I think you actually create a higher bar bar for yourself from a political standpoint if you say, "Well, this is this is this is you know this is conspiracy, this is racketeering, this is whatever you want to say," using those mob language. Because ultimately, that requires some kind of an you know organized conspiracy. The only thing that is organizing this is the fact that Trump is such a force in the in the Republican Party. He continues to make these false claims about the election. These false claims continue to have you know a significant impact on the direction of Republican politics and the actions of Republican elected officials. And even if those Republican elected officials are figuring out that you know there's a way to kind of like have it both ways and sort of you know push through on the same, you know, push the same buttons that Trump is pushing uh, while not necessarily endorsing Trump. The only thing is, is that, you know, and I don't know how to say this any other way, but Trump is so clearly, you know, his self-interest in this is so apparent. Yeah. And what's not, you know, anywhere in any place of this speaking about leadership is like any sort of any so any person really pushing, you know, the interest of the country in any well, sort and, of, you know, and against, notable way. And that's and something you know, we've talked about institution, you know, I mean, at some point, you have to own that you're eroding institutions. Right. And, and yeah, the institutional backstop, the idea that, well, the institutions will, will be able to withstand this. Well, right. the, this is a direct attack on the institutions. And while I don't want to saint her in any way, this does lead to the fact that Liz Cheney lost resoundingly right. in the Republican primary last you know last night in Wyoming, as expected. Right. Um, but she's framing her resistance in those terms. Yeah, well, and, and, pretty yeah. Di- pretty directly, right? But you know, yeah, and I mean, I you know, I think as it, we're talking about you know elite modeling, if you will, right, and signal sending. I mean, she's very much in the majority in the minority in her party right now, right? And if the polling is to believe to be believed, certainly as we're seeing consistently in our polling, she's swimming against the tide of public opinion among Republicans right now. Yeah, I think I think that's right. You know, so I mean, and, I, yeah. And so, I mean, and so what I would say is, you know, the things I would like, you know, I'm trying to sort of turn, where do we land on this? Where are we, what are, what are we taking away from this? And I mean, for me, the things that I'm, I'm really thinking about is, you know, and for the sort of people who listen to this podcast, which I think, you know, in a lot of cases, a lot of reporters and people are pretty, you know, tied into this kind of stuff is, is one, you know, to think about how much lumping and splitting we're doing between a lot of actions that are being driven by the same sets of attitudes, right? Yeah. And by the same people. I think, you know, we need to be, and I'm not, I don't know where I land on this, but I think we need to be, you know, either justified in thinking of these as all as one thing or, you know, clear about where they are and where they aren't different. But even if we are going to do a little too much splitting here, I mean, I think it is important to note that, you know, whether you're running for secretary of state of Arizona or whether you're making a call to an election administrator, if the goals are the same here, I mean, we kind of have to start to ask how we're treating this stuff. And then I think to your point, you know, how should we be talking about this? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable saying, you know, if you're calling up election administrators and, threatening them physically with violence if they basically engage in the conduct of elections you're a terrorist i mean right. i you know come tell me tell me I, i'm welcome you know i'll, I'll welcome well what, to I, what I would to say me. to that and they, you know we got to close out but i you know t- if you go back and you look at the language of what that committee report came what right one of the points that they really wanted to make was that yes there's this kind of decentralized atavistic Mm-hmm. You know, some guy, you know, guy, and there are a lot of guys, although there are women are prominent in this as well. But, you know, sitting around like making, you know, nasty phone calls to, to election administrators. But they were key about saying, 
the investigation un- uncovered coordinated campaigns right. that did link these things together. Mm-hmm. Um, and that does give you some, and that was clearly what they're after, yeah. some surface area to begin to link these things together and think about them as organized efforts and you know, engage them in that well, way, you know, and, and I mean, what's tricky about that is that, you know, whether somebody is saying, okay, you know, you know, person X, your job is to file a million open records requests, you know, person Y, you're on the phones tonight calling, making nasty phone calls, person Z, you're, you know, whether yeah. that is exactly what's going on or not, there is some general awareness and and this kind of comes out in the Draper yeah. piece in Arizona that all of these things are going on and that they are mutually supportive efforts. There I, are, I agree with there you. are people that realize that. Yeah, and see and that's the thing I think, you know, you know And that's, you know, that's, yeah, in that messaging And that's a Trump model. Yeah, and in, in messaging I would say, you know, the Democrats do themselves some service by trying to, you know, say this is coordinated if there's coordination because then it sort of takes away the dismissal of, oh, well, this is just some guy in his basement right. making calls. Yeah, right? exactly. You know, you're trying at, you're trying to be conspiratorial about just a few cranks. At the same time, I think, you know, you're you know, you're not gonna, you know, they're not gonna find, you know, smoking gun evidence of some kind of nationwide coordinated effort because, you know, it's not necessary. The right. point is is that the point is is that this is happening because elites are continue to push rhetoric right. that creates the 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 environment for coordination, whether or not there's explicit coordination right. you were or not. For a takeaway a minute ago, and I think yeah. that's to me that's one of the things that kind of comes out of this. Right. That, you know, if you look at this in the longer sweep that goes back well before Donald Trump, mm-hmm. what we've seen is a series of signaling by elites that has been those signals have been picked up, replicated, and have you know, metastasized and are now feeding back on elite behavior. Right. And that's part of why you have a DeSantis, an Abbott, you know, several figures that are now going, okay, I need to be, I need to position myself in this. I can't just wash my hands of it because these are my people. Yeah. So I think on that, I'm going to thank Josh for being here as always. Uh, thank our excellent staff, uh, in the audio studio here in the liberal arts development studio at UT Austin. They're getting busy again. There are students on campus. I think they're right now they're just rushing, I think. Um, uh, but you can you can feel campus stirring, I think, and they are busier in here. So as always, we thank them for their steady support and uh, tolerance of our bad habits. Um, and remember, you can find all the data that Josh and I were talking about today, much, much more at the Texas Politics Project website texaspolitics.utexas.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with another Second Reading Podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.